Part of what I say at the beginning of each Sunday service is that as Unitarian Universalists, we draw wisdom from all the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science. And this sermon is my annual invitation to reflect both on religion in general and on a religion in particular. What is this thing called religion, right? Uh, Where did it come from? What is it about? Well, for better or worse, I want to be honest with you that it's difficult to respond to those questions in any sort of concise way because what we humans mean and have meant by religion is a lot of things. It's multifaceted, it's complex, it's notoriously difficult to define. Although there is no simple, uncontested definition of religion, I've been studying this field of religion for quite a few decades at this point, and I have uh, one of my side hobbies is collecting definitions of religion, Uh, and I'll share with you just my top five best or favorite definitions of religion. Uh, I actually put these on a handout because I thought they might be easier to follow, so you should have received that. If not, there's one out on the table with the orders of service. From a traditional Western perspective, religion can be defined as a culturally patterned interaction with culturally postulated superhuman beings. More generally, religion can be defined as an experience with the holy. And what is the holy? The holy is something that is set apart. It's something different than that which is ordinary or mundane or what is sometimes called profane. Another definition that focuses on on the experience in religion is that religion is an an encounter with a mystery that is simultaneously terrifying and fascinating. You're scared of it, but you're also lured, drawn to it at the same time. The, The Latin phrase for that is the mysterium tremendum et fascinans. One related metaphor, I think, to something that is fascinating and terrifying that I think is related to our UU chalice and lighting that is that um, religion has been called the study of playing with fire. It can be alluring and a source of warmth, but it can also be scary. Think of the Australian fires, right? And it can literally be used to burn you. Think of the Salem witch trials. A quite useful definition of how religion functions is that anything can be religious if it becomes for us an ultimate concern. And my favorite definition of religion comes, perhaps not surprisingly, from my favorite religion scholar, Jeffrey Kripal, who teaches at Rice University. He defines religion as humanity's millennia-long encounter and struggle with the anomalous, the powerful, the really, really weird stuff that does not fit in, that does not make sense. Some of you may know the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. He he often says sometimes, the universe has no obligation to make sense to you. Or the physicist um, J.S. Haldane used to say that the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, it is queerer than we can suppose. To add a few more major definitions of religion from a skeptical perspective, I've unpacked these at length in a previous sermon that I'd be glad to share with you if you're interested. Religion has been defined as an illness by Freud, by a narcotic by Marx, as a weakness by Nietzsche, and as a projection by Feuerbach. Diving deeper into the word religion itself, this is also on your handout, the most popular etymology of religion is that it derives from the Latin word religere, with an A in it, related to our English word ligament, meaning that religion is something that binds us together. 
And I appreciate the ways that definition points to how religious rituals, um, spiritual practices, what we're all doing here this morning, can be powerful ways of building and sustaining community. The shadow side, of course, is that religion can also be abused, that binding power can also be used in a controlling, in a cultish way. Think of Jim Jones and Heavensgate and others. The case has also been made that a more correct etymology of religion is from the Latin word very close, religere, with an E in it, to be careful, to be mindful. Think of this in the sense of, I read the um, re- newspaper every morning religiously, right? That's, that's religion in that sense. And there's a strong argument that this latter sense more, actor- more accurately characterizes religion in the ancient world, which really was about this, often about a careful performance of religious obligation. And that can be really hard for modern people to get that think of religion as about faith. It's about what you believe. It's about intellectual sense. That wasn't what it was. It was about what you did very often in the ancient pre-Christian world. It's like a lot of people ask you use, what do you use believe? As some of you have heard before, what you use believe is that that's not the most helpful question to start with. You know, <laughs> what we believe is that you don't have to believe alike to love alike. We believe in deeds, not creeds, right? For this morning, since yesterday was Chinese New Year on the traditional lunar calendar initiating the Year of the Rat, It seemed like an auspicious time to explore the larger phenomenon of religion from the particular angle of religion in China. One reason is that for those of us who are primarily familiar with religion in the United States, learning more about other cultures is, of course, both valuable in itself, and it can also help us understand our own situation from uh, using a comparative lens. Another significant reason is that our UU6 principle is the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. And it's honestly hard to take the goal of world community seriously without focusing at least occasionally or more than occasionally on China, which I've never done explicitly before in a sermon. Consider, for instance, that the current worldwide population, as I shared with the children earlier, is 7.6 billion people and rapidly rising. If you Google like a world population clock, it just keeps going up, right? We may be headed for about 10 billion or so. Here in the U.S., we're a large country population-wide. We're the third largest country in the world, actually, with a total of 331 million people currently. But in the global scheme of things, the U.S. is 4% of the global population. This is on your handout as well. By comparison, China is number one. It is the most populous country with approximately 1.4 billion people or about 18% of global population. There are more than four times as many people in China as in the United States. Uh, India is a close second at 1.3 billion. The three traditional Chinese religions are Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. And unlike perhaps more familiar religions to many of us, not all of us, of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, traditional Chinese religions have never been these kind of separate institutions that you, know, you have to, they have a separate institution and you're an adherent to only one exclusively. Instead, most Chinese people have historically followed this kind of blend of the three traditions for whatever was helpful. 
Also, similar to that etymology we considered earlier of religion is what you do religiously, regularly, mindfully, ritually. Most practitioners of a blended Chinese religion didn't focus on belief. Rather, they looked to these religions as for services. A community might invite a priest or a monk to perform rituals at temple, for example, uh, and they offered these spe different special techniques. So maybe you needed some Buddhist chant, um, Chan meditation or devotional Pure Land spiritual exercises or a Taoist meditative exercise or a Confucian moral um, self-cultivation. Along these lines, I'll use Confucianism um, as an example um, uh, as an example of how this is sort of different. So like from a Western perspective, Confucianism is uh, easily uh, misunderstood as like just another belief system. It's much closer to like a ethical system or a system of norms. It's much more akin to like how you might consider, I don't love the term Judeo-Christian, but it's when we talk about like Judeo-Christian norms, that's sort of how Confucianism functions in China. Where even those who dispute or re reject these norms, we often find ourselves shaped from them even if we're rejecting them, like, and we're shaped by them consciously or unconsciously. In China, Confucianism plays that kind of outsized role and emphasizes mutual obligation. Um, it helps maintain hierarchies, a, a belief in self-development, education, improvement, and above all, Confucianism emphasizes an ordered society. Here's one excerpt from Confucius's great learning that you might find children chanting historically as well as today in China. Their thoughts sincere, their hearts are rectified. Their thoughts sincere, their hearts are rectified. Their hearts rectified, their persons are cultivated. Their persons cultivated, their family were regulated. Their families regulated, their states were rightly governed. Their states were rightly governed. The kingdom was tranquil. That's the sort of Confucian vision. You can trace that rising crescendo culminating in a rightly ordered society. And although there's much, much more to be said about the 2,500, you know, we think of uh, our, our country here in the U.S. is a few centuries old, right? China is 2,500 years old. Uh, so there's much more to say about that long history of Chinese religion, but I'll focus for now just on the past century or so, which has uh, included some huge shifts. For just a little bit of background, and for those of you who didn't deeply study Chinese history, I certainly did not have that opportunity growing up in South Carolina. Uh, for a little background, in 1839, um, starting with the first Opium War, which was fought between Great Britain and the Qing Dynasty, uh, China suffered a series of military defeats, which over time caused this national crisis of confidence. China had been a pretty confident place, and then this series of military defeats had, had shaken them. And so religion, uh, especially anything deemed superstitious, was used as a scapegoat. It was accused of, this is what is holding China back. This is one of the reasons we keep being defeated and can't compete in the modern world. So ironically today, now that China is this rising power, you know, just looking at the, uh, many of the decades of the 21st century, China's economy has been growing by like 10% a year. So, I mean, just this um, huge growth. So now that it's a rising power, ironically, traditional religion is back again in many ways. So clearly religion and political power are compatible, but that truth was very much not clear in the late 19th century in China. Uh, it, they sort of felt like, you know, the definition of insanity is if you keep doing the same thing, don't expect a different result, but sometimes you don't pick the right things to change. Uh, so here's uh, some of what resulted from the governmental targeting of religion. In 1851, there were 866 temples in Beijing alone. Today there are 18. 
2% of temples in Beijing survived that purge. China had an estimated 1 million temples around the turn of the 20th century. Scholars estimate that by the middle of the 20th century, um, half of the temples that in, existed in China at the end of the 19th century had been destroyed. At the end of the 19th century, most villages had at least one temple. Many had half a dozen. Uh, vast sections of the Chinese countryside now have no temples at all. It's perhaps important to note that much of this loss was actually prior to the um, communist rise to power. So today, if you're a member of the Chinese Communist Party, you're required to be atheist, at least officially. But at the time of the communist takeover in 1949, half of those one million temples had already been destroyed. This is about a trajectory that started in the late 19th century in the wake of those series of military defeats. Uh, the temples were often destroyed, they were shuttered, or uh, quite a few of them were actually converted into schools. There's a lot of schools that are now in the in former uh, temples. And in ways I don't have time to fully unpack, it's also interesting to think about the sort of cult of Mao that developed, to think that even though that was officially atheistic, in many ways Mao functioned as a god uh, in that kind of ultimate concern religion. Uh, so Mao Zedong was the founding father of the People's Republic of China that he ruled as chairman. So Chairman Mao, um, uh, from its establishment in 1949 until his death in 1976. And to name only a few way of how people acted religiously towards him, people wore Mao badges, they waved his little red book of sayings that kind of functioned as a Bible, and people traveled to his hometown on pilgrimage. What's been interesting since Mao's death is the remarkable regrowth of religion in China. In the words of one Chinese citizen, we thought we were unhappy because we were poor. Now a lot of us aren't poor anymore, and yet we're still unhappy. We realize there's something missing, and part of what's missing for us has been a spiritual life. In addition to the return of the traditional Chinese religions, one of the most remarkable points of growth has been Protestant Christianity in China. It has grown 60-fold. So it has grown from 1 million adherents in 1949 to an estimated 60 million today. That's remarkable growth. Similar to the way that the Chinese government cracked down in 1999 on the meditative movement practice Falun Gong, which some of you may have heard about, uh, as it grew to include more than 70 million practitioners and then suddenly started to feel out of control to the Chinese government, it's a severe crackdown. Today you're witnessing government persecution of Protestants today in China. So in churches that the government approves of, often sermons must be vetted in advance to, quote, avoid contentious political and social issues. My sermons are not vetted to avoid uh, political <laughs> social issues that are contentious. Uh, clergy are not called by the congregation, so you all voted to, to call me, right? Instead, the Communist Party tells you who your minister is going to be. Now, there are private house churches, but again, that gets, uh, those are often sometimes under threat. In 2018, the Chinese government banned online sales of Bibles. They burned crosses. They demolished churches. We're, and we're talking, in some cases, like 50,000 people megachurches that were, that were burned demolished and forced at least half a dozen places of worship to close. Last year, the pastor of one of China's best-known unregistered house churches was sentenced to nine years in prison, where he is today, on charges of inciting subversion of state power. 
Even worse has been the recent treatment of Muslims in China. If you haven't read the New York Times columnist Nick Kristof's article from last year on China's Orwellian war on religion, I really encourage you to read it. The upshot is that China is detaining at least one million Muslims in concentration camps. The further tragedy is that the concentration camps, the separation of parents and children on our own U.S.-Mexican border, is undercutting our moral authority to speak against that, to speak out for human rights, to speak for the separation, uh, for the freedom of religion. And so to me, it's important to be aware of what's happening in the globe and equally important to, be, to hold up that mirror to ourself about our country's own xenophobia, our own Islamophobia. We have a lot of work to do here at home. But I don't want to end on this bleak note, even as I felt it was irresponsible to look at religion in China and not mention it. Overall, more closely studying the history of religion in modern China, you know, looking at the late 19th century, looking at what happened in the mid-20th century, and looking at what's growing, and looking at the backlash today, it just made me freshly aware of how a political situation can change so quickly from better to worse and back again. Um, so as recently as 1970, for example, you can find scholars describing China as a nation state with one-fourth of the Earth's population with, quote, hardly a trace of religion. That was 1970. That scholar, an expert on religion, failed to see the ways in which religion was already sprouting and would continue to burst forth for the decades to come. Likewise, there are folks who couldn't see the current authoritarian backlash. They could only see the, the growing revival. So allow me to move toward my conclusion by encouraging us to remember the significant wisdom that remains in traditional Chinese religion whenever it is allowed to flourish. Uh, Renee helpfully shared earlier a passage from the Tao Te Ching and of the three traditional Chinese religions of Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. I've over time said the most previously about Buddhism, so I'll, I'll say a little bit more about Taoism today. I'll have to get to Confucianism another time. What wisdom might there be for your life today from the Taoist tradition? The Taoist worldview reminds that, that all of us humans, whether we're sage rulers or just common folks, are merely part of a larger whole. We're not special in the grand scheme of things, so we should be cautious about, what, about over-interpreting what happens to us from some kind of ultimate perspective. As the Tao Te Ching, the most important Taoist text, says in chapter 58, it is upon bad luck that good luck depends. Think about the yin-yang symbol, that swirling uh, black and white image with the, the dots of black and white and the opposite. So it is upon bad luck that good luck depends. It is upon good luck that bad luck depends. Who knows where it ends? But perhaps this view is even better exemplified in this ancient Taoist story. There was an old man at a frontier fort in the north of China who understood Taoism. One day he lost his horse. It wandered into the land of the Hu tribesmen. His neighbors came to condole with him, and the man said, How do you know that it was bad luck that I lost my horse? After a few months, the horse returned and brought with it some fine horses from those Hu tribesmen that had followed it along back home. And the people congratulated him, and the old man said, How do you know that it is good luck that I now have so many fine horses? He became very prosperous with so many horses. Then his son one day broke his leg riding. And all the people came to condole with him again. The old man said, How do you know that it is bad luck that my son broke his leg? 
One day, those few tribesmen invited the frontier fort. They came looking for those missing horses, and the healthy young men fought with arrows to defend their homeland. Nine-tenths of them were killed. Both father and son escaped unharmed because the son's leg was broken, and he was unable to fight. Therefore, good luck changes into bad, and bad luck changes into good. It cannot be known where their alternating ends. Thus, we can begin to see why one of the central characteristics of a Taoist master is equanimity. Equanimity, mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper, even a situation that feels incredibly difficult in the present moment. Whatever happens to us is never happening to us only individually. We're part of this larger whole, what our UU Seventh Principle calls the interdependent web of all existence, what Dr. King calls In a real sense, all of life is interrelated. All are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Good luck, bad luck. It's hard to tell. It's not just one simple thing. So what wisdom might that Taoist worldview hold for you today? Is there maybe something happening in your life or the life of someone you know, whether seemingly good or bad, that's actually not just about you in the grand scheme of things, but actually part of this larger whole in ways that may be difficult to perceive at the moment or maybe ever, but may reveal themselves a little more fully in the future? How might seeing things instead of in isolation, but in this larger context, a more spacious context, part of a more intricate web, how might that let you shift things a little bit? Um, Maybe even find yourself a little freer, a little more liberated, with a little more equanimity.